together in prayer. Living and loving God, your kingdom draws near and you speak to us and invite us to be a part of it. As we reflect on your words to us in the Bible, may we hear your call afresh and may these words of mine be caught up by your Holy Spirit and made into something that nourishes your people. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Have you ever considered all the ways in which we know how to say no to things? Sometimes we do it very politely by saying gently, no thank you. Sometimes we do it by just not responding or ignoring the request and pretending we didn't hear it. Sometimes we explain that we've got something else on so we can't do it. We're quite good at saying no, quite skilled at refusing invitations or denying requests or fresh ideas. And saying no in and of itself is not a good thing nor a bad thing. It's just a thing that we need to do sometimes. Sometimes we need to say no to things. We need to say no to opportunities or to threats that come before us in life. But I think it's worth considering why we say no to things, why we refuse to go along, or why we don't want to participate in something that's been offered to us. Generally, we say no because we're already committed to something else. No, I can't come for lunch after church today because I need to mow the lawns. No, I can't give to your charity because I've already committed to give money to another charity. And no, I can't buy what you're trying to sell me because I've already made a decision to spend my money somewhere else. We say no because we've already made commitments. And a commitment means to give loyalty to something, to have entered into an agreement with it. And commitments lie at the heart of healthy, well-functioning communities and societies. Commitment to do certain things or to act in certain ways mean that social interactions can be predictable. It means we can rely on others. It means we know that if we go to work, we're going to get paid. And we know what time people are going to show up for work in the morning. Commitment means dedication. It can provide some certainty. But equally, commitment means being obligated in certain ways, having certain actions closed off to us. Being committed means that sometimes we need to say no. Sometimes these commitments come about because we've actively chosen to commit ourselves like when a bride and a groom stand in a church and make promises to one another. Sometimes commitments kind of creep up on us, like when we were bored and we started watching a TV show on Wednesday nights and found that it was quite interesting. And soon we watched it the week after and the week after that, and then we realised that we were committed to watching this show and to knowing what was going on in the story. 
And sometimes commitment is simply demanded from us. We don't feel like we have a choice but to be committed to doing things in this particular way. Sometimes commitments are just part of the fabric of society. Like how when everyone drove here this morning, they followed the road rules. Or how we pay our taxes. There's commitments that we choose to make. There's commitments that creep up on us. And there's some commitments that seem to be demanded of us. I wonder what ways you are committed in your life. What active commitments you've made. What commitments crept up on you. And what commitments have been asked of you. Or are just there as part of the air that you breathe without even realising. Because whenever a new opportunity comes along, or whether, whenever there's an invitation, all of these commitments that we have are in the background, or perhaps even in the foreground, as we make a decision about whether we're going to say yes, or find one of our many polite or not so polite ways of saying no. As Jesus walked along the sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, In Mark chapter 1, he called out to Simon and to Andrew to come and to follow him. And like any invitation, this call to discipleship clashed with a bunch of existing commitments. These disciples, just like us when we get invited to do something, these disciples had any number of ways of saying no but they chose to follow. Despite all the things they were committed to, they chose to accept the invitation. And as we read through this passage, we see a wide range of things that they're committed to. There's active things, there's the creeping sort of commitments, and then there's other commitments that are demanded of them. And as we look at the text, we can get a sense of these commitments. And the way in which their decision to follow Jesus changed all of them. The first that we notice in the text, and perhaps it's the least obvious out of all of them in the passage, was the way these disciples were committed to their society, the way they engaged with the rulers of the day. Jesus opens his public ministry in Mark 1, 14 and 15, by declaring that the kingdom of God has drawn near. Now, as we read through Mark's gospel, we see that it's a fast-paced gospel. The stories move on quickly, and the story focuses on the actions and the deeds of Jesus. And all of these things point and bear witness to God's plans unfolding in Jesus. Mark is always looking to move the story forward, And he often doesn't give us much context or a huge amount of detail. So Mark, given that he's so economic and frugal with his words, it means that when he gives us details, we should pay attention to them because he's trying to help us understand something and understand the significance of Jesus and his ministry. In Mark 1.14, the announcement that the kingdom of God is drawing near, comes after Mark telling us that John the Baptist has been arrested. So 
So he says, after John the Baptist was arrested or put in prison, Jesus started announcing the kingdom of God. Now, it was King Herod who arrested John. And chapter 6 tells us that John was arrested because he criticized Herod for marrying his brother's wife. You're probably wondering at this point what this has to do with commitment that I've been talking about. But we'll get there. Just bear with me. Right at the start of the gospel, the king of the day is brought into the picture. The king of the day, King Herod, and the Roman Empire that he served is one of those things that demands commitment from people. One of those things that these disciples were committed to without even making an active decision. And kings throughout the Bible typically don't get good coverage. When Israel had been freed from slavery and arrived in the promised land, they did all of this without a king. And when they demanded and asked for a king, God spoke through Samuel in 1 Samuel 10, and God spoke and said that Israel's desire for a king was a rejection of God, because they were choosing to commit their lives and to trust in a king rather than in God. Kings were seen as a rejection of God because they claimed power that belonged to God, because they called people to trust in them and their strength. Kings were a rejection of God because they forced people to serve in their armies and to die in their wars. Even good kings, like David, who's the best king that Israel had, he set up a man to die so he could take that man's wife. Kings and rulers demand commitment. Just like countries and institutions ask for commitment, just like laws ask for commitment, kings demand commitment. And if you are a subject of a kingdom, it means that sometimes you have to say no to other things. Today, it means that you don't get influenced by other governments. In New Zealand, it means I'm not allowed to support any rugby team but the All Blacks. There's things that being part of a kingdom or being part of a nation means that we have commitments. Simon and Andrew are supposed to say no to any other kingdom except the kingdom of Herod. If they don't, it's dangerous for them. If they don't say no to an alternative kingdom, they can end up like John, who gets arrested. We see the same dynamic at work later in the gospel when they are engaging with the temple and the religious authorities. The commitment that is demanded of them by the king and the empire of the day should lead them to say no to following Jesus. Now, as well as the king, Simon and Andrew and James and John are just normal everyday people who have all the normal commitments that people have. Commitment to their family, to their community, to their work. Andrew and Simon were by the, net, by the sea fishing because they were part of a family business, working together to support the family and the wider community they were a part of. Likewise, James and John were part of a family business. They were working with their dad when the invitation to come and follow came to them. They have commitments to family, to their father, to the community, to the people who buy the fish that they catch. 
it's not as though James, uh, Simon and Andrew or James and John had no commitments. They had a whole lot of things that pressured them to say no to following Jesus. Yet when the call came, they got up and they followed. Do you ever find that the things you're committed to can lead you to saying no to following Jesus? Do you find that listening to the news first thing in the morning is more interesting, perhaps, than reading the Bible first thing? Or that pressure at work stops you being able to fully engage with God? Or family commitments can make it hard to be engaged with prayer? Or ideas and social views make it hard to accept others? Or perhaps it's just that we live in a world that is arranged differently from what Jesus calls us to, and this makes it hard to follow. Do you ever find this? If you do, you're not alone. Following Jesus isn't always easy because it calls all of our commitments and the way we do things into question. It calls all of the commitments, the ones we actively chose, the ones that crept up on us, and the ones that are just there because of the kings and the institutions and the cultures and the ways of the world demand them. How was it that Simon and Andrew and James and John were able to get up? Is it because they're better Christians than us? Do they have something that we don't possess? Are they just extra strong and we are weaker? The clue is in the passage. It's, it's in what Mark tells us before the call. Mark tells us about the proclamation of the kingdom. He starts by talking and saying that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And this good news is announced before the call to discipleship. Mark tells us about this kingdom, and he puts it alongside King Herod, who is arrested and then later executes John, because it reminds us about the good news of the kingdom. The announcement of the reign of God isn't just regime change after a war. It's not just a new government after an election. As Jesus announces the kingdom, he invokes an ancient tradition and a series of promises in the Bible of God becoming king and of God acting to save his people. When we read the same story from Luke's gospel, who typically gives us more detail, we, we read of Jesus quoting the promises of Isaiah, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free. As Jesus announces the kingdom and uses these promises to teach people about what he's talking about, he's reminding them of exodus, of liberation, of broken things being made right, of God's love coming to form and shape the life of people and showing that God's kingdom is more powerful and more gracious and a better kingdom to be a part of than the kingdom of Pharaoh or the kingdom of Herod. When we hear about the kingdom of God, we are hearing about freedom and liberation 
and grace. Simon and Andrew and James and John turn from their commitments, not because of strength of character or because they're better Christians than us, but because of the arrival and the drawing near of the kingdom of God. They're able to make a commitment and say yes to following Jesus because God is drawing near with a better vision for life, with a promise of salvation and a hope for the future and making that a reality in their lives. They can say yes because God frees them from the things that would make them say no. The kingdom of God comes and frees them so they can live in God's way. While so many of our commitments in life might encourage us to say no to Jesus, while so many commitments might demand to be in charge and to have the final say and to say no to the kingdom, and whilst we might in so many ways, politely or bluntly or by ignoring the invitation, Whilst we might say no, Jesus comes to us and declares that the kingdom is near and he invites each one of us to enjoy the blessings of it and to be a part of it arriving here on earth. Jesus calls us to say yes and to get up and to follow as we're set free from commitments that bind us and obligations that keep us captive. Now, this doesn't mean that we just throw out all our existing commitments and forget them. It doesn't mean that we forget our promises or enter into an anarchist refusal to engage in society. And neither does it mean that everything in our life, like friends, family, culture, and work, need to be left behind. Instead, it means that these commitments change. They are no longer absolute. We look at them instead in the light of our commitment to Christ. After these disciples started following Jesus, Herod kept being king and Caesar kept ruling Rome and they kept living more or less according to the laws of the day. But by being part of the kingdom of God, it meant they were now living as though God was the ultimate power and it freed them to disobey laws that were unjust. Simon, Andrew, James, and John remained Jewish men. They retained their culture. But as they followed Jesus, they learnt more and more about God's purposes and plans. And they found that God's promises were for more and more people and that they were richer and led to an ever-expanding joy that they hadn't expected. As we join with Jesus and seek first the kingdom of God, we too look anew at who we are and our commitments. And we can find whether they fit with the ways of the kingdom. Does this commitment we have, does it lead to life? Does it lead to human flourishing? Does it celebrate diversity and unity? Or does it promote separation and segregation? Does this commitment lead to life for others? Or does it go down the path of death? Does this commitment bear witness to the endless and unfailing love of God? Or is it serving something else? The question, will you come and follow me, 
is fundamentally a question about commitment. Who are you committed to, first and foremost? Is it to the ways of the world and the ways of humanity which pass away like grass in the field? Or are you committed to Jesus, the one who brings the kingdom and dies so that it might be inaugurated here on earth? Friends, may we see this kingdom arriving. May we sense its liberating power in our lives. And being set free, may we follow Jesus, find our lives renewed, and the world transformed as Jesus brings God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's stand.